The following episode first aired in 2018. In 2015, archaeologists at James Madison's Montpelier Plantation invited a group of people to spend a week digging on their grounds. Oh, we found a lot of great things. We found a pipe, found buttons, button, um, nails, mm -hmm. a a hinge. 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 Um, They weren't archaeologists or historians. Instead, they came because their family trees have roots at Montpelier. They're all part of Montpelier's descendant community. The place where they're digging is the site of a smokehouse in an area called the South Yard. It's an area where enslaved workers once lived. It's such a mystery. You know, you wonder, what were they doing at this time today? You know, were they cooking and were they talking? They were talking to each other and everything. All that is lost with the people that were living in the Madison home or any other place. You know, it's all lost until we kind of revive it by getting little artifacts, and we can find out a little bit of how they lived and what they enjoyed. What is it? A whole spoon. A what? Don't pull it out. Oh, gosh. That's a whole spoon. Yeah, definitely do an in-situ of that. Yeah, we're going to take a picture of that. Elise Vaughn, who is black, and Carol Dove, who is white, found each other after Carol watched the TV show Who Do You Think You Are and began an ancestry search that led her to Elise. There's something in us, I believe, that wants to know where we came from and who those people were. And now we're coming together as a family reunion of people who don't know each other. And you, we have white and we have black, I mean, and every shade in between. <laughs> and we're coming together. And we are family. This dig was part of a new effort by Montpelier to engage descendants like Carol and Elise, not just as people who visit the site, but as people who take an active role in telling the story of Montpelier. It's just a lot that we have to learn, and we just have to learn by talking about it and doing something about it, working together so we can learn about it, each mm-hmm. other, you know? Montpelier recently hosted a national summit on slavery, They convened scholars, museum professionals, and members of descendant communities to talk about how historic sites can change the way slavery is taught and understood in America. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, Teaching Tough History. One of the people at the Montpelier Summit was Justin Reed, who in 2014 set out to find the Virginia plantation where his ancestors had been enslaved. And he found it, and he went there. As I was looking around, I remember I was kind of standing in between like, the kitchen slave quarter and the main house. And, you know, I, mean, I might not have been hyperventilating, but <laughs> close to it, I think. It just came out of nowhere. It was a shock, right? It was like, you know, when you have a, a rush of emotion that you don't expect, it wasn't as if it was like this this gradual sense of sadness. Um, it wasn't a sadness. It wasn't, it wasn't an anger. But it was like this overwhelming sense of completion. I set out on this journey, and I'm here. That's the best way I could describe it. Justin is director of community initiatives at Virginia Humanities. He's a native of Farmville, Virginia, where his family has roots dating back to slavery. One of the oldest photos that I remember in my grandmother's house was a photo of my great-great-grandfather, Reverend Jacob Randolph Sr., uh, Reverend Jake, as we called him. Um, it's him, kind of very handsome and dignified. He had a mustache that kind of curled at the tips, and he's sitting in like this Game of Thrones-looking chair, <laughs> but he's holding a Bible. He was a very prominent minister. One interesting thing about Reverend Jake, I mean, he was born in 1859, but he also attended seminary. Like, what positioned him to be able to attend college even though he was born enslaved. I mean, he would have been six years old at the time of of emancipation. Um, But he obviously felt compelled to attend college. 
I feel like I grew up knowing quite a bit about Reverend Jake because of stories that I heard from my grandmother and her siblings. Um, but one thing that always intrigued me was the fact that he was born in Hampton in Cumberland County. Um, one day I was, um, I guess, shopping in downtown Farmville and I decided to stop inside of this antique shop right on Main Street. I knew that my friend's grandmother <laughs> worked there, uh, Ms. Barbara Gamage. I started talking to her and I told her I was just stumped. You know, I had been kind of looking into my family history. Um, it says that my great-great-grandfather was born at Hampton in Cumberland. I told her I'd never heard of a place. And she said, oh, that's out by Amped Hill. <laughs> and I had never heard of Amped Hill. And I think after that, I became determined to to visit that site. The drive to Amped Hill Plantation is it's a very it's a very beautiful drive. I mean, you're you're passing through Central Virginia rolling hills. It's near the James River. Um, there's still a lot of farms out there to this day, and it's very pristine. So, large plantations like Amped Hill would have historically had multiple enslaved communities. And so there was a small community in that portion of the plantation where they lived was called Hampton. And there's still, I mean, it's still there, really. There's a sign that says Hampton. As I was approaching the house, I'm not really sure what I felt then. I just wanted to see something. Um, I guess I wanted to see if there was any evidence of my family any structures there. Um, I think I wanted to have a physical place that I could feel rooted in. And it was important for me to get to that site. And when I got there, I, I, I was I was struck by, I don't know, I hate to say it, but I was, I was, I was struck by how beautiful it was. Um, so I guess at that point... <laughs> I probably was a little nervous because here I'm just showing up. I'm this black guy. <laughs> like, like, I'm here. And this guy starts approaching me. And I introduce myself. Uh, I'm Justin. I'm researching my family's history. And I believe they're connected to Amped Hill. And I mean, he was very gracious and he told me that his, his brother-in-law owns it. Um, they they recently reacquired the property. Um, but they're descendants of the original owners of, of Amped Hill, and that uh, this is when they might be back. Feel free to look around. And I remember when he, when he kind of walked off, I just started looking around the house and looking at some of the outbuildings. And I do remember, like, I, I broke down in tears. And I just I started imagining where you know where my family worked, where they may have been. I started to think about my grandfather, who you know was very young when his mother died, and started to think about perhaps you know she died in this building here. Um, it was it was an emotional time to to be there, I think. Then I came out there a second time when no one was there and left a note for the Harrison families that that own it today. And then I feel like shortly after that, Randy reached out to me and we set up a time for me to come back and, and meet Randy um, and his wife, Paula. And you know, they're very gracious. And we sat down and, you know, I think they had a glass of water and we talked. And, and they gave me a tour of the house and, you know, told me they wanted to stay connected. And that was pretty much the extent of our first meeting. When I was meeting Randy for the first time, I do remember it like, searching his face, right? Because there's so many stories of, of of enslaved Black Virginians being, you know, related, 
biologically. I mean, you're related regardless of whether you're descendant or whatever, but you're related through, you know, the institution of slavery, but their stories are being related by blood. At that time, I recognized that that could be a possibility. And so I remember, like, trying to see in his face like any resemblances to, to relatives of mine. Like, I, I do remember that. When I first met Randy, I was asking him questions about records and things, things, papers they may have. Um, I know he pulled up his, like, his family tree, I guess, on Ancestry. He was trying to see, I guess, what he could pull from those online records. But I think he's also going through a period in, in his life where he's, he's wanting to know more about his family history. And they're also interested in the history of the enslaved community there as well, which was good to hear. Our initial meeting could have gone so many different ways, right? I could have met someone who was in complete denial of this history or somebody who was defensive. Um, I, could have, I could have met someone who was kind of an apologist for his family's actions or even tried to present this narrative of benevolence. You know, there could have been many different routes this, this conversation could have taken. Um, but one thing I appreciated was the fact that that Randy was very matter-of-fact, and he understood the fact that this was this very exploitative economic system. And I appreciated that because that's the truth. What do you do next once you know this history? Like, how do I interact with Randy and Paula's children who are my age, would it be appropriate for us to have a friendship? Would that be disrespectful to the memory legacy of my enslaved ancestors? How do we navigate and build a relationship that's rooted in something that's so painful? I think there's just so many unanswered questions. What if it leads to nothing? You know, we don't what is what is the final goal? And and what if it leads to absolutely nothing? Would that just cause there to be this I don't know, this this like this unresolved hole? I don't know. Um like what what if it leads to nothing? But then also what if like what if it leads to something? <laughs> I don't know how I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of it all uh, I mean different scenarios would be you know we we have it we have a connection we're able to form a friendship but is that possible like it's because in the back of your mind you understand that you know your position in life is rooted in this very unequal unjust history and essentially the the, the privilege and opportunities that the white Harrisons have have had for generations have been at the expense of of my family um but would there be festering resentment um you know would 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 the hurt bubble up at unexpected times be- because we've only had two in a Interactions to date I haven't really kind of broached the issue of slavery and its legacy. It's like those deeper level conversations, but I'd be curious to have a better understanding. Because there's, there's history, it's like there's a lot of weight <laughs> behind our, our interactions. And you know, I'd be fine if it's awkward. I'd rather it be awkward than to to be upset that it, it doesn't matter you know because I, I, I want it to matter to to them just as much as it matters to me Justin Reed is the director of community initiatives at Virginia Humanities Schools 
schools are, of course, one of the primary ways we teach the history of slavery in this country. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is an historian at Ohio State University. He says when it comes to teaching slavery in schools, we're failing our kids. The Southern Poverty Law Center found in 2017 just 8% of high school seniors could identify slavery as the central cause of the Civil War. 8%. Hassan Kwame Jeffries and his colleagues are determined to change that. Hassan, you've been working with the Southern Poverty Law Center on a project called Teaching Hard History. Don't we already teach hard history? I think what we do in the classroom, uh, as well as in our museums and historic sites as well, is we avoid teaching hard history. Um, That's exactly what we don't do. Uh, We tend to gloss over the difficult subjects and American slavery just being one of them. Uh, We tend to sanitize. Uh, We tend not to want to deal with uh, the hard truths of our past, uh, in part because they make us uncomfortable. So what we're saying is, with the Southern Poverty Law Center's report, Teaching Hard History, is exactly how do you do it? Uh, That we need to talk about uh, American slavery if we're going to talk about the American enterprise. Isn't it surprising that in 2018 we still have difficulty talking about slavery? I don't think so, because we've never addressed it and talked about it in a real frank and candid way. In other words, it's a problem that's just not new. We can go back to the framers and founders of the the nation, the Republic, James Madison. We're sitting here right now. And in the Constitution, they don't mention slavery. Why? Because they're having a difficult time even talking about and mentioning it themselves. So I'm not surprised that we're still wrestling with this issue because we have yet to sort of confront it head on. What about you? What sort of slavery education did you get growing up in Brooklyn? I got the same thing that everybody else got, which was this sort of Disney version. New York wasn't involved. Um, You know, slavery was was bad, but I don't really know who was responsible for it. And, And so that was the formal education, right? If I got any at all, right? It was very surface, very limited. But then I was also... Um, receiving an informal education, right? So from parents and community that were talking about, wait a minute, this is, what you're learning in school is not the full story. I've heard it both ways. I've heard African-American families say their parents and grandparents hushed up about it because they didn't want to pass on to their own children a sense of fear or inferiority or there are many reasons. I've heard others like you say, no, no, I got a private lesson. Well, I was in both camps. Both of my grandmothers didn't want to talk about it. I remember I was, I couldn't have been more than six or seven years old when Roots came out. Uh, and my uncle and my dad, they were excited about seeing it um, and wanted us to sort of look at it even at that young age. And I remember distinctly, one of the earliest memories I have of my grandmother, um, I remember asking her, are you watching Roots? And she was like, no. She's like, because it's too painful. And we never talked about that or any other subject. So I can certainly understand that. As a father myself now of young girls, you want to preserve the innocence of your children. And so you try to hold that information back. But on the other hand, we live in a world uh, in which when you try to preserve the innocence, you're actually exposing children to a harmful effect. So what has been the hesitation to more fully discuss slavery, would you say? Would you think it's just sort of we're on autopilot or it's deeply deliberate or there's just too much other stuff to teach? And so I think it's a mix of the first two. Part of it is autopilot. Uh, We have been conditioned to teach slavery in a particular way. But part of it is also uh, very much a function of uh, something that is purposeful. Uh, that to teach slavery the way we're talking about teaching it, the way we're recommending talking about teaching, about people's involvement and investment and the impact that it had and their ability to survive and endure, is something that becomes very personal to people, right? It upends the ways in which you have been taught about not just slavery, but the American past. It, it, it runs up against uh, this idea of America is just perpetual progress. And if you begin to say, wait a minute, America is about fits and starts. It's the, the, the two foundational pillars for this nation upon its founding was racism and capitalism, and they are embodied in slavery. 
Well, then what does that say about everything I've been told and taught about this? And and once you expose people to the truth and students, and I, I see this in my, I get this reaction from my students every semester when we talk about this stuff. The first question is, why haven't, why wasn't I taught this before? And, and then why would somebody want to keep this from me? Right. And that, that changes the way people sort of young people, especially kids, will respond to everything else. Well, if you've held this from me, what else are you not telling me? And that can open up a whole can of worms, I think, in a good way. We want our kids questioning received wisdom and knowledge, I think. But not everybody is that open. So how are you going about working with the Southern Poverty Law Center to teach the tough history? What what are the steps to doing that? Well, I think the first step is you have to be unafraid. Um, these topics are, especially something like American slavery, it's emotional. Um, it can be painful. Uh, we're talking about tragedy and trauma that is still impacting the lives of communities. Uh, so you can't be afraid to deal with something that is a heavy subject. Um, so I think that's the first thing. The, the second thing is you have to be committed to the truth. We're not asking people to make something up. We're asking them to share the truth of the American past, right? So I think as sort of walking into this conversation, you have to approach it with those two big ideas in mind. And then we really do have concrete steps, right, um, about how to approach particular subjects, right? So if you're looking at sort of the institution of slavery itself and the economy undergirding it, we're saying, look, this is not just about a plantation economy in rural Virginia. You got to connect that economy to sort of banking and industry in Newport, Rhode Island, and manufacturing in, in Massachusetts. So we talk about the ways to really show and teach this as a, a national phenomenon uh, with a lasting legacy. And, and you do that in very concrete ways, right? Like this happened here. This is the reason why it happened. And these are the connections that it made. How young should we start? That's a great question. I think you begin. What I have, I have three daughters, age seven, five, and, and and two and a half. And my wife thinks I'm crazy, but when my oldest daughter was three, I was like, "We need to talk about slavery." She was like, "No, don't talk about slavery." <laughs> I'm like, "No, you have to." I think the, the the, but it has to be certainly age appropriate. I mean, calculus is hard, physics is hard, but in preschool they're doing physics, right? And now we're not calling it physics, right? They're doing basic math. No one would say. Well, calculus is hard, so we're not going to teach math until they're in high school. You build a foundation. And I think you have to do the same thing when you're dealing with these hard subjects in the humanities, and particularly with American slavery. You build a foundation. What do you make of what we're doing right here at Montpelier, the plantation home of James Madison, one of the founding fathers and a key founding father when it came to the founding principles that we so revere in the Constitution? Montpelier is trying to turn around the way we tell our history. They are, and they're doing a great job. This is where James Madison, essentially the father of the Constitution, drafts the Bill of Rights, right? Like, it, it's here. This, this is the founding document of our nation. And what Montpelier, through their exhibitry and through their interpretation of this historic site— is saying that you cannot understand what happened in that second floor library where James Madison is offering this vision of a new democratic society unless you understand what was also happening in the cellars where the enslaved folk were working, unless you understand what was happening in that south yard where they were working and living, and unless you understand what was happening in the fields because that made possible the time and space and luxury for Madison to help craft and create what was going on in that library. You know, as I was driving through this beautiful countryside today to reach Montpelier, I saw a sign that said, James Madison's home, just up the road a couple miles, and farther down the road, a sign for the wilderness, which is the battle, the bloody battle of the wilderness. It was the Civil War that was to come decades after James Madison's lifetime. And it was an eerie foreshortening of the unresolved history of enslavement. You know, we, we think about the—it's uh, often said that the slavery was America's original sin. I actually say, no, slavery is America's origin. 
Uh, that's the beginning. That's the foundation. There was no talk of sort of a civil war in you know the revolutionary period because everyone understood that we are fully dependent upon slavery, right? But it very much as the nation evolves, as the economy evolves, then there is this greater sense of inevitability, right? Of a conflict that will have to be resolved, and it ain't no compromise that's going to save it. What do you make of what happened in Charlottesville in August? the gathering of the alt-right just 20 miles from Montpelier. You know, I think it's a reflection, it's an amplification of attitudes that that have always existed, right? I mean, it's white supremacy. And we would like to think, at least some of us would like to think, that it has lessened over the years. It's still there. It's always been there. Most people will admit it's always been there. But that, to a certain extent, these public um, outpourings of support for white supremacy and an embrace of white supremacy were no longer publicly acceptable. Uh, And I think Charlottesville was a wake-up call uh, for those of us, myself included, who had come to believe or at least like to believe that we had moved far enough away or into the future (laughs) that that was no longer the case, that people uh, at least may still harbor those views, but certainly didn't feel comfortable and empowered to sort of share them in this sort of public way um, that has real-world consequences, Heather higher. I mean, people lose their lives as a result of this belief in white supremacy. And the reality, the wake-up call is, like, no. Like, it's not only do people still believe it, but there are people in the highest echelons of our nation that think that it's okay, that they themselves are embracing a very visceral version of it. Uh, And that all comes to a head uh, right down the road in Charlottesville. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is a professor of history at Ohio State University. This has been an encore presentation of an episode that originally aired in 2018. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. This is an encore presentation of an episode that originally aired in 2018. The name of our show today, Invisible Founders, comes from a book by archaeologist Lynn Rainville. Lynn's book looks at the generations of African Americans who built Sweetbriar College in Virginia, but whose stories and contributions have been overlooked. Lynn introduced us to Crystal Rawson, Crystal's great-grandfather, Sterling Jones, was born around 1875 and worked at Sweetbriar throughout his life. Trying to find a cabin in the woods really is how my story begins. When my grandfather passed away, I overheard a story um, about a cabin that our family lived in that was a slave cabin. So I began looking for this cabin, sure that I would never find it, that it wouldn't exist today. But it actually was there in in great condition um, in the backyard of the big house on the campus of Sweetbriar. Sweetbriar College is an all-women's college in Amherst County. Virginia that um, was a plantation before it was a college. It's nestled in in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, about 2,000 acres, um, large buildings, a beautiful Italianate house, lots of fields, very, very well kept, um, a, a very beautiful place to see. The big house is now the presidential home 
um, for the, the president of college. But at that time, it was their family home. It was the Williams, Fletcher Williams family home. The slave cabin is in directly in the backyard of the big house. And there would have been many, many other cabins all in a row going down behind the, the, the house. There were many, many people who were enslaved there. I'm not really sure of the exact number. Um, hundreds. I'm the great-granddaughter of Sterling Jones, who was a worker of Sweetbriar College during a period of 70 years. The earliest record I found for Sterling, he's 11 years old, and he's working to build the bricks that would eventually become the campus buildings. It would have been pretty intense labor for a a, a child at that time. Um, He's spending a lot of time there. um, And really, I can't find many records of him doing anything other than work at Sweetbriar. They lived in that slave cabin into the 1920s. um, Many children of his were born in that cabin, and he shared that time there with his wife and and several children before they moved into the adjacent community in Coolwell. That community of Coolwell is still there, maybe a mile or two away. Those people have been living on that land and working at Sweetbriar for generations. Uh, many, many people are descendants of the enslaved population of Sweetbriar Plantation. I would probably go as far as to say a good 90 percent uh, or more of the, of the African-American community that work there. My grandfather's sister, Dorothy, started working there as a very young girl, and uh, I know it had to have been difficult for her to watch other young women be able to get this type of education that was not afforded to her. Sweetbriar did not um, integrate until the 1960s, but she was dedicated to Sweetbriar, continued to love it. They honored her in the 1990s with an honorary degree and named a building after her, the Dorothy Sales bookstore. My life experiences at Sweetbriar began when I was just a a young girl, probably three or four of my earliest memories. Um, I would come into the campus every morning with my great-grandmother who would drive me in, and it just seemed like a magical place. It was my grandfather, Sterling Jr., um, that passed away when I heard about the story of the slave cabin. Uh, One room and a a loft area upstairs, a fireplace, a few windows. That's about it. I had an opportunity to spend the night there with Joseph McGill with the Slave Dwelling Project. He is going around the the country, not just the South, but throughout the country, sleeping in um, antebellum buildings to bring awareness for them not to be destroyed. Um, It was, I think, nine of us that stayed that night, and it was a cold October night. (laughs) I didn't know it would be so moving, but as I laid there on the floor, I realized that that it was home to a lot of people, and it's still there. It's old. I mean, it's it's the nails date back to I think the 1840s. Um, that cabin was home during times of slavery and after. It was where people had a life. They had children. They raised their children. They lost their children. I could just imagine my great grandmother, you know, trying to raise her family in such a small space, and and the idea of that was quite moving for me. I go over to Sweetbriar probably once a week or more. Um, I spend a lot of time just driving around campus. I'll go and read a book or look at the look at the big br- the buildings, look at the bricks that my I know my ancestors helped to build that eventually became those those large beautiful buildings. Um, it's an amazing um, experience to come back to something that you know your ancestors were a part of, and that they may possibly have been enslaved at. Uh, gives a, a, a huge perspective to it, but it doesn't change my love and, and, and the feeling that I have about it, no. I think it's very necessary to reach out to the community, to find the individuals um, who are connected to these places, and to reach out to them and to have an open, honest dialogue about how they feel about it, how their families feel about it, and what is necessary going forward. I think it's it's difficult on all ends, and I think maybe that's why it hasn't happened. It's difficult for people who are not African-American to have the conversation because they feel guilty or bad or, you know, this is really heavy stuff. And then on the other hand, it's hard for African-Americans to have the conversation because it, it was hard and it was a difficult time, and people don't want to go back thinking about those types of things. But I think it is necessary to to 
get this information out there, because otherwise you forget those people's lives. If we don't want to talk about it, then we're not having the conversation about those people that that went through those things. We're only having half of the discussion. Uh, there's a lot of power in knowing where you come from. And I know now, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to have found out as much as I have. I'm still looking for more. Crystal Rawson is a local historian and genealogist and great-granddaughter of Sterling Jones Sr. While descendant engagement at historic sites is gaining more attention, it's not a new idea. Michael Blakey is the National Endowment for the Humanities Professor of Anthropology at William & Mary. For decades, he's been committed to the idea that descendants of enslaved people should be more involved in the process of telling America's history. Michael, in a recent op-ed, you wrote that history lessons in most American schools are expressions of continuing white supremacy in the United States— That's a strong statement. Expressions of continuing white supremacy. Do you mean by what they are saying or by what they're leaving out? Well, white supremacy is based on the idea that whites are essentially the only human beings in the room. They are the real human beings, and they are superior to others. Even as throughout the 20th century, they began to uh, amend that to including others among humans, whites still put themselves in the center. Uh, Today, it's commonly thought by many Euro-Americans who don't believe in supremacy, uh, believe they are normal, natural, unmarked, unhyphenated Caucasians. And then the rest of us are, you know, we're the sidebars of history. But that's not what history really was. And we are given an education that teaches us this. But aren't modern textbooks and school lessons from the very young up to high school doing a much better job of giving a much more complete picture of our slavery roots? No. You know, we have in the interpretation of slavery a deep contradiction between the valorization of whiteness and therefore of white ancestors and the humanization of Africans and African Americans' ancestors. Once one realizes or portrays African Americans as human beings who resist slavery as they did, then one has to ask, well, what were they resisting? And then one discovers the brutality, the constant whipping, the psychological brutality that characterized Jefferson, Madison's plantation. Uh, there's, There's some really frightening stories about Dolly Madison. Can you give me, for instance? Sookie. Sookie was Dolly Madison's personal servant. Dolly had accused Sookie of stealing her jewelry. Dolly sold Sookie's children. What must that mean for this African-American woman, Sookie, to have to work every day closely with a woman who sold her children and then had the, um, and I'll call it audacity, you'll see why, to accuse her of stealing her jewelry, which, given all of that, I think Sookie would have had every right to do. But then Margaret Jordan, who is a a descendant of Paul Jennings, Madison's private servant, said Madison's stepson, Dolly's son, the rascal heir, Margaret said, I bet he stole the jewelry. And that is the kind of awareness that African Americans have, whatever they're standing. They know about those 
accusations and those blind spots. And Dolly was a adulting uh, mother. That story tells me a lot. Do you believe that our sort of heroic view of American democracy and the Founding Fathers could exist alongside a more truthful discussion of slavery in our history books? Uh, That's the way we are. Human beings are imperfect. And those Founding Fathers, many of them, were deeply flawed, even someone like uh, Jefferson who wrote about equality and freedom, was in his personal life a slaveholder. Uh, the relationship with Sally Hemings um, is, you know, you can't have consent if you are, if one presumes to own a person. That person cannot engage in consensual sex. So he was uh, sexually exploitative, all of those things. Audrey Smedley, an anthropologist I respect, uh, has written about um, Jefferson as the American paradox. He represents a dilemma, ultimately deciding that while slavery is wrong, he could not afford to do without it. Um, Jefferson becomes a metaphor for America as a whole. Then and now, there's this desire, as all people have a desire to be moral and virtuous. But along with that, throughout our history has been the greedy desire to have uh, uh, everything they can at the expense of others. So the only way to become healthier is to recognize the problem. What do you make of the efforts by the archaeologists and historians at James Madison's Montpelier plantation site to change the way we tell the story of the enslaved people who built and lived on and made these plantations thrive? Montpelier has been a special case in that I think they have moved rapidly to catch up with the idea that one has to involve descendants in the conversation. African-Americans, who especially those who are descended from the enslaved here or anywhere, have a different interest in telling the story, can see beyond the blinding light of race to an understanding of America that can't be told by whites in their valorizing their past alone. So, uh, Montpelier has done very well over the last 15 years. I've joined them several times in the course of their engagement with the public to develop exhibitions and, and interpretations that tell the truth. And uh, what they have done in their new exhibition, A Mere Matter of Color, is to achieve a great deal of truth for the public. And, you know, I did a survey on a project I co-directed called Remembering Slavery, Resistance, and Freedom throughout the state of Virginia, talking to uh, historical societies and having public meetings. And the the white folks um, often said they were tired of the pablum of these uh, plantation interpretations that just valorized the plantation owners and didn't give one a sense of the majority population of those enslaved people who actually built the plantation and created the wealth and who were brutalized. But they wanted to know the real story. I think many people, Euro-American or or African-American and others, are interested in the truth. The truth is more interesting. What's next, do you think? What can we do even more across the country at these exhibits? Well, we need to do a lot more of the kind of thing that was done here at Montpelier, a lot more of the kind of thing that was done uh, around the New York African burial ground and at other sites. Just shifting the definition of descendant community produces better science, better interpretation, more accurate history. Tell me about the African burial ground in New York City. This was discovered or rediscovered in 1991 when federal workers creating a federal office building, uncovered a few hundred of what are believed to be thousands of African-American graves dating back to colonial times. Yes, this site was used as a cemetery for Africans enslaved in New York throughout the entire, nearly the entire 18th century and back into parts of the 17th century. It's surprising to hear Africans were enslaved in New York. We forget that. Well, that was the surprise for many people. And uh, slavery is these days characterized as an institution of the South. That's part of the development of an emancipatory narrative that followed the Civil War in which the North came to construct itself as the site of those who were 
uh, seeking freedom and and equality. It came to be, uh, you know, the origin of the nation shifted from Jamestown, Virginia to Massachusetts as we celebrate Thanksgiving. This is a mythology that has been created. There was slavery in all of those colonies. The 20% of the New York population in the 18th century was African, and they were, 95% of them were enslaved. How could we lose sight of the place where so many thousands of these Africans were buried? How could that come as a surprise in 1991? Well, our our educational system does little to teach us about African America, much less Africa, much less slavery. There were thousands there. Uh, 15,000, we estimate, in about a five-block area. There has always been a counter-narrative and a, uh, an alternative history that African-Americans have had. And there has been, uh, throughout the intellectual life of African-America, an understanding that history is political and that omission and distortion of African-American history is par for the course. You and your research team found most of these individuals had muscle tears and spine fractures, that many of them had been worked to death. We have a a new finding that shows changes in the labor for women. You know, there's a muscle attachment in the back of the thigh bone called the linea aspera, and the muscle attachments grow as the muscles are used. So someone who was engaged in more arduous labor would have a larger linea aspera than someone who had only light work. And what we found was that for men, uh, African men in New York, throughout the 18th century, about 75% or so had particularly enlarged linea aspera. For women, they begin the century at about 28% with an enlarged linea. And then over four successive phases or periods, that frequency rises. So that at the um, period of the American Revolution, as many women had enlarged linea aspera as did men. And we understand that there were attempts to control revolt. There were two revolts in New York in that period. And one of the ways that uh, Europeans tried to do that was to reduce the number of men being brought into the colony. They increased the importation of women and children directly from Africa. And so what we see in the skeleton is the increased burden of work being placed then on the shoulders and the, the backs of women. You've also written that 40% of those buried there were children. Yes, and uh, infant mortality was also very high. More strikingly, perhaps, is the evidence of the lack of old age, if you will, uh, where Europeans live past the age of 55 seven to nine times more often than do Africans who live past the age of 55. I've read that the descendant community from these people buried at the African burial ground wanted to know which African nations did these people, did my people, come from. A lot of times, the white scholars wanted to know something else. Well, when they thought of African Americans, they were interested in racial admixture. Uh, What's the percentage of European ancestry, Indian ancestry, African-American ancestry, African-Americans have been completely uninterested in all that stuff because it's not really of any value. What they wanted to know were answers to these cultural questions. And so because we had organized our project to be responsive to their questions, we began using uh, DNA and other things to find answers. This is a much better question than the question about... uh, how much white admixture? And, yeah, but you know, when you think about it, even though you dismiss somewhat the sort of quick DNA analysis of ancestry, it becomes a means by which perhaps Americans in this melting pot find a new way to see each other. Yeah, I think there may be some positive implications, and uh, Alondra Nelson, uh, uh, a, a sociologist at Columbia, has written a book called The Social Life of DNA. Have you been tempted to look into your own? I have been. I've recently decided that I will send in two or three tests. Do you have expectations? No. I've been fortunate in that my mother's people were 
Natticoke Moors, they're mixed Afro-Indian people. They were always free. That family were people who could inherit things. On my father's side, uh, there's good family history back into slavery. We still have the old home place down the down the road from Montpelier. Some of my people were enslaved on, at Montpelier. So um, I have a pretty good sense of uh, where I come from. Michael Blakey is the National Endowment for the Humanities Professor of Anthropology at William & Mary. He was the scientific director of the New York African Burial Ground Project from 1992 to 2004. This has been an encore presentation of an episode originally aired in 2018. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassie Deering are our interns. Some of the music from today's show is from Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.